Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is David Auji and this is the Big Picture broadcasting simultaneously on Radio Islam and Radio Al-Ansar. Ahlan wa sahlan. And how's it? So, how's everything, eh? <laughs> Are you chilled? <laughs> what a ridiculous statement, ne? Motabaji? Chilled. With load shedding and boiling hot weather, the mood is not good, eh? And you got a problem putting the aircon on because your nose gets totally conked out. Ish. Life is hell, ne? Mr. Grumpy Chacha. <laughs> but you know what? In these times of gloom and doom, terrible things happening to Muslims all over, Islamophobia, massacre at Jenin, Quran burning, everything and every day, everything seems to be bad. Something, something bad, something depressing, almost bumper to bumper, negative stuff. Then suddenly, suddenly, the permanent looking dark storm clouds, they just part just a little bit, and one tiny ray of sunshine breaks through. And we are so delighted, so thankful, so ecstatic, filled with joy at this wonderful sight, hoping and praying that this little parting of the clouds means that the sun will break through in its full glory and bright days lie ahead. Yes, we grab with two hands anything positive that emerges, no matter how small and peripheral to the, to the scheme of things. <laughs> I like that. Peripheral to the scheme of things. Hey, Uncle, stop raising your eyebrows with that irritated look and wondering what I'm on about, eh? Okay? Chill, Brazo. Chill. <laughs> well, dear listeners, I'm going to stick my neck out a bit and also choose my words very carefully just in case I am misunderstood and attract some unwelcome, unwelcome clubs. Or some may conclude that I'm just a cynical old goat instead of uh, admiring the rose, I'm worried about getting poked by the thorns. <laughs> we got that. Eh? And, you know, I always say this. The definition of an optimist, right? An optimist is a pessimist who doesn't have all the available facts. An optimist is a pessimist who doesn't have all the available facts. You got that, Mota? No? <laughs> Never mind. Your fro will ex explain it to you. So, where were we, eh? Where were we? Uh, well, I suppose I'm getting taking too long to get to the point, am I? Right, okay then. Here it is. We were hit with the feel-good breaking news story that a, that a Muslim has just been elected the executive mayor of Joburg. Wow! Euphoria! Celebrations! WhatsApp on fire with wonderful positive messages of a new dawn. Great stuff, Habibi. Great stuff. Abu Bakr, Tapelo Ahmad, an imam, a graduate of the Darul Ulum in Newcastle, 
and uh, I'm told he's holding a BA degree in Islamic sciences. Very articulate, of course. Very articulate. Um, and uh, I can make that out from hearing him in an interview at 6.30 a.m. on SAFM this morning. He spoke at length there. Nice guy. No doubt about it. But you know what? Let's just step back a bit and look at the big picture. So, exactly what happened that got our imam to, um, uh, to the post of executive mayor? Well, firstly, earlier this week, the DA's Dr. Paul Palatim, who was elected mayor on the 22nd of November, 2021, was voted out of office. So who was going to take her place? Big question. And that's where the problem arose. The big boys, that's the EFF and the ANC, well, they can't see eye to eye. They couldn't see eye to eye. One doesn't want the other to have its candidate to be mayor. What to do? What to do? So while there is the stalemate between the two mayors, a mayor has to be elected immediately, has to be put into place. So they said, okay, let's put someone there for the time being until we, the big boys, sort out our problems between us. And so it's a temporary arrangement. That's why our Imam, Molana Abu Bakr, is referred to as the transitional mayor, right? Or provi- provisional mayor, almost like a caretaker mayor. Now, just a reminder that he is from a very small party, the Al-Jamaa party, which I believe has only three seats in the council, in the Johannesburg council. So the big boys know that they, well, they won't have any trouble should at any time they want to vote him out. No trouble at all. Once they decide on their own candidate for mayor. Right? Are you still with me? Right, so the, they'll have no trouble getting him out. Already, the horse trading, heavy horse trading between the EFF and ANC has begun at full steam, baby, full steam. So, Molana Abu Bakr was voted in by 138 votes as the new mayor. But as you can see, his sell-by date can be just around the corner. Could be one week, or could be one month. Well, I, you know, I mean, I sincerely hope that he can stay on for very long. But uh, with all this horse trading going on, it's, I suppose it's all politics. Anyway, that's the way I see the whole scenario. And uh, you know what, Habibi? I could be totally wrong. But in the streets of WhatsApp groups, there is jubilation unbridled celebration. <laughs> That's a victory for Muslims. And Imam at the helm of the largest city in South Africa, a city of four million, wonderful stuff. One clever chap posted this very sober message that really made me laugh. He said, folks celebrating as if Joburg has become an Islamic-run province. <laughs> Uh, what a cynic. Anyway, as the saying goes, 
sorry to rain on your birthday. Hmm? Spoil everything for you. Throw cold water on all the celebrations. Let me emphasize. Yes, it's nice to have a Muslim, a black Muslim at that. Uh, you know, I use that word somewhat reluctantly, black black Muslim, but or a black person. But anyway, it's not offensive as people refer to themselves as that that word. So I was saying one positive uh, that I see, even if it's for the moment, it's about perception. I wonder how many people, fellow South Africans, will be th- will be thinking, how go? African man is Muslim. I thought Shulman is only Indian. Hey, Islam is the Indian religion, I was thinking. And now we have this uh, black person here, African. So there you are. If in a small way that this mindset, this kind of thinking is changed, then that's a welcome, positive message, no doubt at all. It's sort of dawa, ne? Okay, so that's all about the breaking news story. But wait. There's just been another huge breaking news story. Yes, folks? A shocking story that had me completely underwhelmed. (laughs) Are you ready? Pass on your seatbelts. Deputy President David Mabuza told Ramaphosa that he is resigning. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes, and yes. What's going to happen now, eh? Is the rand going to collapse? Will Parliament be called to discuss uh, this uh, question urgently? Will Joe Biden call Rama and tell him to ask David to stay on? Will we have snap elections in the country? You know, I'm so nervous, eh? Nervous. My nerves are wrecked. Can't even find the Prozac, baby. <laughs> okay, let's stop kidding. Since he took office on February 2000. Uh, 2018, February 2018. Can anybody out there please tell us what our invisible deputy president has been doing? Hmm? Anyone? Put your hands up. No hands? Ah, yes. Well, he occasionally disappeared to Russia to deal, we are told, with his health problems. So, why Russia? Is that a vote of no confidence in our health system? Hmm? No comment from me, Habibi. But it's a lacquer job, man. Lacquer job, ne? Nearly three million rands a year salary for 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 doing what? Hmm. Uh, what did you do today, boss? Answer: Nothing. But sir, you didn't do anything yesterday. Answer: Yes, I know, but I didn't finish it. <laughs> On the way, right, let's see, on the very same topic, is a very witty guy who writes a column in the Sunday Times Daily Online Edition. Um, and let me read to you an extract from his latest column. Right? His name is Tom Eaton. His latest one. It's, his, his article is, um, or his column is entitled, Turns out we pay people 200k a month to state the bleeding obvious. <laughs> and here we go, just an extract from his article. There was some important news about load shedding from the ANC on Thursday. By now, you've probably seen the clip of the party's emergency energy dialogue. It was a meeting. 
during which the power went out and everything went dark because the ANC has killed satire and cooked it, in brackets, over a gas fire, obviously. What you may not have seen, however, was Greta Mantashe revealing an extraordinary, perhaps even revolutionary plan to end load shedding. According to the artist formerly known as the Energy Minister, talk of permanent load shedding at stage two was, in his words, not attractive. Instead, he said, we must resolve to eliminate load shedding. Mm, I know. When normal people like you and me are exposed to that kind of intellectual supernova, it takes a moment for the words to sink in. But take that moment, then gaze in awe at what the minister is outlining. Because what he's suggesting is that at some point in the future, we are going to have to resolve or eliminate load shedding. Are you following? Are you keeping up? Or is Mantasha going too fast? I understand if he is... I can understand if he is. I can barely see its broadest stroke hanging just beyond my comprehension, like a specter of pure music and mathematics. But I think what the minister is saying is that his plan is to decide that someone should definitely eliminate load shedding between now and the heat death of the sun. <laughs> and that, my dear friends, is why you and I pay him 200000 rand a month. <laughs> How's that, eh? Stating the obvious, we have to eliminate those headings. Oh, this uh, Tom Eaton fellow is very witty. Okay, let's uh, get serious. Today, I want to pay homage to a very special person. A towering hero in the history of South Africa. A people's hero. A forgotten hero. A humble, simple, dedicated, compassionate man who succumbed to a conspiracy of evil. Yesterday was his, uh, the anniversary of his death. On the 27th of January, 1989, Dr. Abu Bakr Azwat was gunned down in his clinic in Soweto. He died in the arms of his nurse, Albertina Sisulu. We should never forget this great hero. I was so moved by an article written by Ismail Mohammed. Let me share it with you right now. It's a bit long, but please listen carefully about the life and death of this great man. And if you want a copy, please WhatsApp me, A-B-I-E, at, no, it's 082-352-3526, And then when you receive a shade with all South Africans, let me read. Let me read from this wonderful article. It goes without saying that the health services are inextricably tied to the politics of the country. The words of the late Abu Bakr, also known as Hurley Azwat. These words ring so much as we still continue to grapple with the politics of poor health care in South Africa and about how the funds directed for combating the COVID-19 pandemic went into the personal coffers of the then Minister of Health and how the very same man, after disgracefully stepping down from his office, could return to his punted, to, to be punted for the post of president by members of the governing political party at the last conference. One is just left wondering what reaction there would have been from Abu Azmat, which 28 years into a new South Africa has left public hospitals in hardly any better condition than what they were in 1994. 
Atwat was never a favorite of the government hospital bureaucracy system. He was dismissed from the Coronationville Hospital in 1972, a day after he challenged the hospital authorities for his blatant racism against patients and medical staff. Dr. Atwat was given less than 24 hours notice after he complained to the hospital administration that a visiting pharmaceutical representative made a presentation to white doctors only at the hospital. Atwat's dismissal from the Coronationville Hospital didn't deter him from continuing to practice as a medical doctor. He opened up a private practice in McDonald's Farm. McDonald's Farm in Soweto received its first media mention in 1989 and hardly ever again. It was a shack development with about 60 families. The area had no running water and no toilets. That was until Dr. Abu Bakr Azwat, a medical doctor from Lanesia, opened his surgery in the settlement in 1972 after his dismissal from the Coronationville Hospital. The media coverage that McDonald's farm received in 1989 wasn't because Dr. Azwat moved in there and became the miracle maker who made medical services available to some of the city's poorest folks and offered assistance to them in many other ways. McDonald's farm hit the headlines when Dr. Azwat was murdered in his surgery. The media hardly covered the story about Azwat's unfair dismissal from Coronationville. It was particularly opportunistic of some of the apartheid media at the time to try to go in-depth into Azwat's murder because they were interested in a story that the apartheid state wanted as fodder. They did not get the story that they wanted because the people of McDonald's Farm were not going to be their writing pads and McDonald's Farm was soon forgotten. It only received media attention again at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 1996. It was also at the TRC where the name of Abu Bakr Azwat surfaced again today. And that's yesterday, of course, marks 34 years of the anniversary of the death of the people's doctor, Abu Bakr Hurley Azwat. The medical doctor who at Coronationville Hospital had the courage, had the courage to stand up and say, it goes without saying that the health services are inextricably tied to the politics of this country. Coronationville Hospital in the south of Johannesburg has post-1994 been renamed the Rahima Musa Hospital to honor one of the women leaders in the ANC's 1956 uh, march to Pretoria. Rahima Musa was a formidable activist and trade unionist who deserves to be honored and remembered. A street in Johannesburg is named after her. Coronationville Hospital should have been renamed the Dr. Azwat Hospital, but the ANC's attempts at writing out the histories of activists who have not worn the colors in an unfortunate feature of the past is an unfortunate feature of the past 28 years of the ANC-led government that holds the pen that writes history. Perhaps the ANC-led government thought that naming the hospital after Azwat would have left it with many ghosts that would have haunted them because at the time of Azwat's death, the ANC stalwart Albertina Sisulu was a nurse, nursing sister working for Azwat at his, at his surgery. The two shared a close bond but it was far more complicated because Ma Sisulu also shared a closeness with another mother of the nation, Winnie Mandela. At the Truth and Reconcili Reconciliation Commission, the dots were drawn between Winnie, Albertina Sisulu, 
Stompy Sepay and Dr. Azbat, when in an impassioned plea at the hearings, Desmond Tutu said to Winnie Mandela, I speak to you as someone who loves you very, very deeply, who loves your family very deeply. There are people who want to embrace you. There are many who want to do so. If you were able to say something went wrong and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for my part in what went wrong. Desmond Tutu was referring to Winnie Mandela's complicity in the death of Stompy Sepay. Tutu concluded his address to her by saying, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, please. I have not made any particular finding about what happened. You're a great person and you do, do not know your greatness will be enhanced if you said, sorry, things went horribly wrong. After consulting with the lawyers, Madikizela Mandela apologized to the mother of slain activist Tom Pusepe and in what almost came full circle to the story about Dr. Aswad's death, she replied, I will take this opportunity to say to the family of Dr. Aswad how deep, deeply sorry I am. When Mandela was fingered in the notorious murder of child activist Tom Pusepe, during the torrid time in the notorious Nelson Mandela Club, agents of apartheid state also worked to discredit the mother of the nation. At the 23rd anniversary of Dr. Aswad's death, Mosibudi Mangena, speaking from the podium, said, The story of Abu Aswad is just as tra tragic as it is historic and inspirational. It is the story of a man who unreservedly committed himself to the struggle of his people for freedom who steadfastly defied the oppressor, who devoted all his energies, talents, and professional skills to the service of the poor, but who had, was apparently murdered by either the very poor he worked so hard for or by the liberation struggle gone mad. Dr. Aswad was murdered because he treated Stompy Sape, and he knew just a little too much about the injuries that led to the young boy's death. There is no doubt why Coronationville Hospital was never named after Dr. Abu Bakr Azwat. The political ghosts would have been far too haunting for those who took the pen from the nationalist government to write South Africa's history and to write out those parts of history which just did not seem politically expedient. Long live the spirit of Abu Bakr early Azwat. Yes, it's written by Ismail Muhammad. Hmm. And at, uh, I just came across something at um, the Truth and Reconciliation hearings. Um, the, the killer of Abu Bakr said that he had received the gun from Winnie Mandela. That's what I read online today. Right. Let's move on very quickly. We don't have too much of time. How much of time do we have? Right. Now... Um, uh, okay, now to Palestine, and I feel absolutely sick. I'm sickened to the core when I read about and hear and watch on the news about the almost daily murders of Palestinians and, of course, all the other atrocities that they are subjected to. And uh, with the right-wing government in place, hell is going to be even worse. But I'm sure you are well informed about what's happening in Palestine. And so I won't elaborate further. But to give us his first-hand perspective of the situation, I'm privileged to have 
Associate Prof Professor uh, of Post-Colonial and Post-Modern Literature at Al-Aqsa University in the Gaza, and that's Professor Haider Eid. I, I hope he's online right now. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Big Picture Program, Professor Haider Eid. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And it's a real honor to have you, uh, Professor. But let me ask, first ask you a very, very important question. Are you enjoying your holiday with your family in Cape Town? Uh, that's a very good question, in fact. But, um, you know, occupation and uh, apartheid Israel always spoils our happiness and, and, and pleasure. So um, two days ago, or the day before yesterday, I, was, I had plans to visit uh, Robben Island with my family and to visit uh, the cell where Nelson Mandela was languishing. And while I was visiting, uh, you know, Robben Island, I started receiving the news of the massacre in, um, in Jenin. So, um, in a way, yes, I am enjoying the company of my South African comrades, the hospitality of the South Africans, the love, the solidarity, all of that, definitely. But at the same time, I keep thinking about the people of Palestine and the people of Gaza, where my family lives. No doubt, uh, it's on your mind all the time. Now, with the right-wing government in place, do you see a decline in support for Israel, given that the new government is openly racist? Well, it's always been racist, the government, all the governments. But this one is openly racist and has consigned the fraudulent peace process to the rubbish bin. And, of course, the escalating attacks and killings of Palestinians. Do people who previously defended Israel find it very difficult to do so now? Is there a slight shift, uh, perhaps even in the United States? Dr. Hederid, can you hear me? Managed to sell the false image to the international community, to the white world, to the Western world, that it's a liberal democracy, that it, you know, respects the rights of the indigenous population of Palestine, that it is, as Benjamin Netanyahu himself put it, um, an azilla in the jungle. And so it has been getting the support of the Western world since, since day one based on the claim that it represents modernity, it respects women's rights, that it is um, a democracy. Right now, it cannot sell that image anymore. In other words, is apartheid Israel used to kill uh, Palestinians with full impunity? Still it kills Palestinians with full impunity, but there is a change on the grassroots level. People and civil society in the United States of America, in the West and the rest of the world, are not buying the, you know, the lie that Israel is a democracy, that Israel is not committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. Mind you, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, mainstream human rights organizations and, you know, the likes of Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and even Israel's main stream human rights organization, B'Tselem, have labeled Israel as an apartheid state. But also, since I'm coming from Gaza, those same organizations... Uh, Dr. Heide, we're losing you there a bit. Hello? Okay, we're going to take a short break and try to get Dr. The largest... The largest uh, sorry, Dr. Sorry, Dr. Ed, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. 
Yes, yes we, 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 we missed the last few lines of, of your statement there. Just, okay. uh, could you just repeat that, please? Yes, and, and as I said, I mean, because I'm coming from Gaza, I think it's important to, rem to keep reminding people that, you know, um, mainstream human rights organizations have accused Israel of turning the Gaza Strip into the largest open-air uh, prison. You know very well that the, the, this, the deadly hermetic medieval siege that Israel has imposed on Gaza since 2007 um, has been interrupted by more than four massacres during which um, apartheid Israel has killed more than 4,500 people, the overwhelming majority of whom are children and women. So I think the current government can no longer sell the image that Israel is a democracy that respects human rights. Now, given that the so-called two-state solution is dead, would you advise the South African government and also the opposition uh, Democratic Alliance to stop repeating that it sees a hope, it sees a hope in a peaceful resolution based on this deal signed way back in 1993? Yeah, well, you know, honestly, you know, coming, <laughs> this question coming from a South African, you know, it is very important, I think, to remind you of the Bantu stands of South Africa. The international community never recognized a single of the infamous Bantu stands of South Africa, in spite of the fact the white South Africa, uh, the white South African government and the chiefs of the Bantu stands were talking about coexistence, cooperation, security coordination, etc., etc. So the question right now, where are those Bantustans? They are in the dustbin of history. And I think the same thing applies to the so-called two-state solution. The two-state solution is a racist solution par excellence because it is based, one, on the fact that, you know, you should separate people based on their ethno-religious identity. Two, it grants Palestine, supposed to grant Palestinian a state only on 22% of the historic land of Palestine, leaving Palestinian refugees outside the equation and leaving 1.4 million second or third class citizens of the state of Israel who are originally Palestinians also outside the equation. In other words, the two-state solution should not even be called a solution. And therefore, I think it's time for us to start mobilizing, you know, the international community, especially governments like your own government, you know, the South African government, to understand that, look, I mean, there is an alternative. The South African route, a state for all of, all of its citizens, and even that solution, the one-state solution, in itself is a compromise offered, a huge compromise offered by the colonized Palestinians to the colonizers. Okay, let me just uh, repeat uh, what you just said now. Um, and shouldn't Palestinians and supporters of Palestine also now say that there's only one viable solution, and that is the South African solution, uh, one undivided state for all the people living in it from the Jordan River to the sea? Of course, this would mean that the first step would be for the Palestinian Authority to dissolve. Would they agree to do this given that they have positions of privilege? Well, you know that when, when uh, the PLO, the leadership of the PLO signed the Oslo Accords back in 1993, they called for the formation, according to the Oslo Accords, the formation of a Palestinian authority for five years only. When in 1999, we were supposed to, to dissolve the Palestinian authority and establish an independent Palestinian state. That did not happen. In fact, the Palestinian Authority has, um, 
All that it does is actually to protect the security of the state of Israel. Nothing less, nothing more. And I think it is time for the Palestinian Authority to start seriously considering dismantling itself and going back to the PLO after the inclusion of um, uh, the Islamic resistance movement of Hamas and Islamic Jihad and the inclusions of all other organizations that are not represented on the Politburo of the PLO. Yeah, because uh, what you're essentially uh, saying is that uh, Israel has been pointing to the P Palestinian Authority and saying, well, the Palestinians are ruling themselves, so, you know, uh, there's nothing much we can do about that. But if the mm -hmm. Palestinian Authority gives up uh, the, the, the ruling, the Palestinians, well, sort of ruling you, as you said, uh, Israel has subcontracted its security to the Palestinian Authority, and that's all what it does. So essentially, uh, the Palestinian Authority will hand over its power to Israel and say, right, you rule over all of us. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That, because according to international law, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are still under direct military occupation of apartheid Israel. When Israel decided to start what, what they called the disengagement plan in 2005 under um, Ariel Sharon, what, exactly, what, what actually happened is that they redeployed their troops around the Gaza Strip, transforming it into a concentration camp, but not withdrawing its troops completely. Gaza Strip, for example, has, um, you know, seven, uh, seven crossings. Six of these uh, gates are controlled by apartheid Israel, and the other exit, which is the Rafah crossing, is controlled by the Egyptian authorities. In other words, Israel is still in direct control of the Gaza Strip, is still in direct control of the West Bank, and therefore it should be treated as an occupying power. Yes, and uh, Professor Eid, um, uh, let me ask you this. The 22% that you mentioned, which was envisaged as the homeland uh, for the Palestinians, a separate state for the Palestinians. What is the situation there now? How much of that has been gobbled up by settlement activity? Well, you know, I think uh, this is one of the most practical reasons why people should stop talking about, you know, the two-state solution. Because as you said yourself, I mean, uh, more than 40% of the land of the West Bank has been annexed to the existing settlements right now in the West Bank. Uh, the apartheid world has managed to swallow more than 20% of that land. And then you have Greater Jerusalem. I need to give you this piece of information, piece of information so that people understand understand uh, what actually is happening on the ground. In 1993, when the PLO signed the Oslo Accords, the number of Jewish settlers in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank was 193,000. The number of Jewish settlers now in the West Bank alone, including Eastern Jerusalem, has exceeded more than 800,000 Jewish settlers living in settlements that are exclusive to the use of, uh, of, of uh, Israeli Jews. In other words, Israel has made the two-state solution an impossibility, leaving us with only one option between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. 
a one one democratic state for all. The other reason why the two-state solution is not practical because it does not address the question of return. And you know that the essence of the Palestinian question is the right of return enshrined in international law. United Nations Resolution 194 calls for the return of all Palestinian refugees to the towns and villages from which they were ethically cleansed back in 1948. The two-state solution does not address that. Number three, the two-state solution does not address the nature of the regime ruling Israel itself, which is an apartheid regime discriminating against uh, Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel. Yes, indeed. Now, um, any critic of Israel is labeled as being an anti-Semite. Have you experienced this personally? And is this label losing its impact uh, value, given, uh, for example, the Harvard Business School backtracking on its withdrawal of the offer of fellowship to uh, former Human uh, Rights Watch Executive Director Kenneth Roth? What's your view about that? Well, actually, I did experience it once. I must admit that. And I was invited to address uh, uh, sharing with the Holocaust survivor, by the way, a platform, and addressing uh, the House of Commons in England. I was online, and then there was, um, you know, a terrible attack against the Palestine Solidarity Committee in England and against Jeremy Corbyn himself, who invited us to address uh, the House of Commons and uh, where, we, uh, where we were supposed to talk about the situation in Gaza, to compare the situation of uh, Jews under the um, Holocaust since we had a Holocaust survivor and compare that to what we are going through, uh, what we were going through at the time in, um, in, in Gaza. And immediately, as soon as we finished, uh, 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 you know, a smear uh, campaign started against Jeremy Corbyn, which you are aware of, and myself accusing us of being, you know, anti-Semitic, etc., etc., etc. So yes, I've been through that. But I, at the same time, it shows how weak apartheid Israel and its supporters are, that they are resorting to this card, uh, confusing, you know, our struggle and resistance, which is basically about human rights, basically about, you know, about democracy, confusing this with a very fascist regime that committed one of the worst pogroms of the 20th century. And I think it is backfiring right now against its Israel and its supporters. People know, you know, what the BD activists are calling for. We are calling for, you know, the implementation of, you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, United Nations Resolution, Security Council Resolution. Nothing ideological whatsoever. We are calling for equality. We are calling for our freedom, freedom of people in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. We are calling for justice. Now, if that means anti-Semitism, then there is a serious problem with that. And around the issue of uh, the rejection of Kenneth Roth, what have you to say about that? About the rejection of? Uh, Kenneth Roth, uh, human rights, uh, former executive of uh, Human Rights Watch. 
Yeah, and well, again, yeah, 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 sure, sure, I, I understand that. You know, again, you know, um, when we, uh, you know very well that I am uh, one of the co-founders of the BDS campaign and the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. I think, you know, the moment we initiated our call back in 2005, Israel decided to start what they called Hasbara campaign, a campaign of propaganda, you know, smear campaigns against, uh, you know, BDS activists, human, human rights lawyers, uh, lawyers, etc., etc. And I think what is happening right now um, is the same thing, a continuation of the same Hasbara campaign, rejecting, you know, uh, re uh, rejection of employing people who support the Palestinian cause, especially, especially in the West. And by the way, as I'm speaking to you, I've just finished a meeting with uh, Judge uh, Suraj Desai here in Cape Town, who had also a similar case. Um, you know, he was accused of anti-Semitism, etc. Et mm. And I think this is the price that we have to pay as Palestinian activists and as supporters of Palestine. All right, two questions in one, uh, Professor. Why is Israel allowed to carry out all the war crimes and crimes against humanity with full impunity? Is there a way out of this quagmire? And secondly, what role can international solidarity play to bring about peace with justice in historic Palestine? Yeah. Well, the first question, I think Israel is allowed to carry out its crimes against humanity and war crimes because Israel is the ally of the United States of America. That's number one. And, and this is why Israel, Israel was implanted in the, in the Middle East in order to protect imperialist and colonialist interests. But at the same time, I think the West has been supporting Israel because of the so-called, you know, Jewish question. Uh, it's a guilt complex. Uh, the Holocaust was a crime, a horrible, a horrible crime against humanity that was committed by, uh, by the West, not by the Palestinians, but unfortunately we are paying the price. In other words, we are facing and we are fighting against a settler colonial project in the Middle East, but also we are, um, we are fighting against the Western imperialist powers. And the Western, uh, the Western powers have found out that the only way to control the Middle East is to implant a project in, in Palestine. And the second question, um, the second question that you asked about what can, what uh, solidarity supporters can do, it's BDS. It's boycott, divestment, and sanctions. This is the leading form of solidarity with the Palestinian people. Look, in 2005, the overwhelming majority of Palestinian civil society sectors issued a statement calling on the international community and in particular supporters and civil society to boycott apartheid Israel, divest from it and from international companies benefiting from its occupation of Palestine and then imposing sanctions against it until it complies with international law. It works against the apartheid system of South Africa and it will work against apartheid Israel. Professor Heide, thank you very much, Jazakallah Khair, uh, for this interview, and thank you very much for the great work that you do in highlighting the plight of the long-suffering Palestinians. And do enjoy the rest of your holiday in Cape Town, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Right. Well, there you heard it from somebody who lives in Gaza, a professor, and uh, we are running out of time, so let's uh, see. One thing you can be certain of, the lights are always on in the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I read this previously, but I just came across it.
a few moments ago, and I thought I'll read it again. I thought it was very funny. Actual, the actual writings in Pumalanga Hospital Register, so it says here, the actual writings in Pumalanga Hospital Register. Uh, so this was the doctors. The patient, uh, doctors or nurses wrote this. The patient has no previous history of suicide. <laughs> Next one. Patient has left white blood cells at another hospital. Patient's medical history has been remarkably insignificant with only 11 kgs weight gain in the past three days. Patient has chest pains. If she lies on her left side for over a year, on the second day, the knee was better. And on the third day, it disappeared. <laughs> I suppose pain disappeared. The patient is tearful and crying constantly. She also appears to be depressed. The patient has been depressed since she began seeing me in 1993. <laughs> Discharge status, alive but without my permission. Healthy appearing, healthy appearing, decrepit 69-year-old male, mentally alert but forgetful. <laughs> Patient had waffles for breakfast and anorexia for lunch. <laughs> she is numb. She is numb from her toes down. <laughs> While in the emergency room, she was examined, X-rated, and sent home. <laughs> the skin was moist and dry. Wow. <laughs> Occasional, constant, infrequent headaches. Yes, now that's uh, something, right? Occasional, constant, infrequent headaches. Patient was alert and unresponsive. <laughs> Rectal examination revealed a normal-sized thyroid. <laughs> she stated that she had been constipated. I forget read most of. She stated that she had been constipated for most of her life until she got a divorce. <laughs> I saw your patient today, who is still under our car for physical therapy. I suppose she will go to right care. The patient. Refused autopsy, skin, somewhat pale, but present. Large brown stool, ambulating in the hall. <laughs> Patient has two teenage children, but no other abnormalities. Well, there you are, some light at the end of the tunnel. And don't forget, on the 5th of March, we are all jetting off to... Jordan, Palestine, and Lebanon. So join us. Seats are going fast. I've only got 35 seats, so contact me immediately for a magical trip. The word is Maja. This is David Alji bidding you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.